One of the things that, <clears throat> as coaches, we would pretty regularly tell the kids um, that we were coaching in football is that it doesn't matter so much how you start, it matters how you finish. Maybe you experience that in one way or another in your life. Whenever I think about that idea, that concept, I, I always think of Solomon. Solomon started great. Seeking God. Lord, give me wisdom. I want to I wanna be able to lead and guide your people. Tonight we, we come to the end of Chronicles. And it's kind of interesting because when we look at the differences between the 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings, a lot of people will say, well, Chronicles is kind of written from God's perspective. You know, he doesn't talk a lot about folks' failures. But I think even more than that, um, I think Chronicles is written from the point of view from Ezra telling the people how it was they were united. He didn't need to tell them how it was they got divided. You guys get what I'm saying? You know, usually when we're in the bottom of the pit, we have an idea how we got there. What we want to know is how do I get out of here? And so when Ezra's laying out for them chronicles, he's saying, look, look back just exactly like what Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus. Remember? Church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 had left their first love. Everybody remember? And the Lord said, Remember from where you have fallen, return and do your first works. So remember when you and I, when you, the church at Ephesus, and I, the Lord, were on the same page and do what you did then instead of what you're doing now. And the same way from Chronicles. The Chronicles, Ezra's laying out for him. Here's what was going on when things were going great guns. Let's do that. Let's have the heart of worship. We've been seeing a lot of emphasis on the temple. Seeing a lot of emphasis on extravagant worship and calling on the name of the Lord. A lot of emphasis on how to get back on track, right? And the whole of chapter 7 is God's response to Solomon telling him, Hey, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, right? And we had the psalm assembly and all the things coming through that period of time. When we look at that, that's all Ezra saying, here's how we get on track. Remember, they're coming out of slavery. Their nation is destroyed. The temple is, is obliterated. There's no country. It's just wild land and broken down homes. And they're coming to that place. And as you can imagine, a lot of people are thinking, why do I want to leave Babylon? I got a house, I got stuff, I got the things I need. Why do I want to go? Why do I want to leave? I got everything I need here. And so Ezra, as he puts together the Chronicles, as he begins to lay it on, on the hearts of the people to come back to that place, the land representing that place where God's promises are fulfilled, where the Lord ministered and met the needs of His people. And so we find ourselves coming to that area right now in Second Chronicles chapter 8. So I invite you to take a look there with me and we'll see uh, what it is that the Lord has for us this evening. It says now, And it came to pass at the end of twenty years, when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon... Solomon built them, and he settled the children of Israel there. Now, what you don't maybe see there is Hiram. You may remember Hiram, the king of Tyre, 
um, Solomon had given him some cities. Maybe you remember. And Hiram didn't like them. He's like, you're giving me slums. So what you see here in these first few verses is Solomon fixing them. He's going into the cities, fixing them up, giving them. Hiram don't want them. That's okay, you know. We'll, we'll fix it up for the children of Israel and prepare them. So it says, Solomon went to Hamath, Zobah, and seized it. He also built Tadmor in the wilderness in the storage cities which he had built in Hamath. And he built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Also Baalath and all the storage cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities and the cities of the Calvary and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. So everywhere... He's, he's really refurbishing the whole country. So what we see in Solomon, and one of the things I try to emphasize whenever I study the Word, the Word of God lays out for us one main story, God's redemption of man. And every example that we read about, if we read about a, an excellent king, a king that does well, then, then that becomes a foreshadowing of the king of all kings. It becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus would say, you know, even Solomon wasn't arrayed as these flowers. Remember when Jesus was talking? There, there were times when the Lord pointed to Solomon's reign. And the emphasis is Solomon's reign was good, but when the king of kings rules, it's even going to be greater. It's going to be more majestic, more beautiful, more peaceful. All of those things will are, are going to be more than what we see on the page of Scripture. On the page of Scripture, the story of Solomon becomes a foreshadowing of another king that's coming. And hopefully we'll see that as we go on a little bit further. But it says in verse 7, All the people who were left of the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, who were not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, these Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. Now, one of the problems in the finishing of of Solomon is in that verse. Really, one of the problems in the finishing of the children of Israel, because God told them when they came to the land to utterly drive out everything. There was a reason for that. The reason for that was all of those people groups represented false religious systems, pagan worship, things that would infiltrate into the hearts of God's people over time. When they first came in, it seems like not such a big deal. You know, okay, we can, we can control our desire. Or, you know, we want to follow the Lord and we want to serve Him. But over time... You know, their neighbors, the, the Paravites or the Hivites or the Jebusites who were worshiping false gods, they begin to, to be induced. Yeah, what's the big deal? We're not that much different. I mean, you call your God by a different name than we call our God. And you do a few different things in worship than what we do. But really, we're probably all talking about the same God. Don't you see the compromise that takes place? It's not very long before the pagan worship of all those people infiltrated the real worship of the true God. And God said He wouldn't receive their offerings, their worship, nor their prayers anymore. He told them, go pray to the other gods. Go worship the things that you put your trust in. Worship your job. Give praise to to your nation. Whatever. Don't call on my name. 
So these all begin to infiltrate. Rather than putting the people out, Solomon made them forced labor. I'm sure he thought, well, I'm controlling it. Just like sometimes Christians believe, I'm controlling it. It's a little thing. And I have control of it. It's just a little thing in my life. But I I got it controlled. I'm going to force it to do good things. I'm going to use it to, to accomplish great goals. A lot of people who struggle with the same concept that Solomon and the nation of Israel struggle at at this point in their history do the same thing. It's just a little thing. I'm going to make peace with it. I remember seeing a story in the paper in Yucca Valley one time. It had a kid's picture on the, on the front of the, this section of the newspaper. And his face was all swollen up, you know, and didn't know if he got beat up or something. So it, 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 it drew my attention. I wanted to read the story. Well, he had been stung on the lip by a scorpion. Now, that's picture-perfect opportunity for a sermon illustration. How'd you get stung on the lip? Well, I got a pet scorpion. The kid's telling the story. I got a pet scorpion, and I had him in my hands, and I just leaned over to kiss him. And the scorpion stung him on the lip. Yeah, that's the way some people treat sin in their life. Like, it's the little thing, it's just my pet. I just bring it out now and again. But eventually... It's going to bite you. You're going to get stung. You're going to get stung. And it's a problem. That's why God said, keep them away. Keep those things out. Make a, a, a delineation between my people and their people. Well, Solomon made them slaves. He made peace with sin. And so, in the midst of Israel, when you go through the prophets, you won't believe how many of them are talking. You'll say to yourself, where did all this pagan worship come from? They never threw it out. It was their neighbors. It was the guy down the road. It was a fella who, who really knew exactly how to take care of the team of oxen. Even though he was a Canaanite. You know, so they made friends. And that's how those things began to infiltrate into the people's lives. It says in verse 9, Now Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants, for his work, some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. Now Solomon, he brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her. And he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the palaces to which the ark of the Lord has come, are holy. So Solomon said, look, I have this wife. She's a daughter of Pharaoh. And, you know, I just married her really to make peace with Egypt. So I'm not going to make her give up her false gods. And because she has all this pagan worship, I'm not going to make her a house here in town. I'm going to make her house outside of the city of David. So she's not in the place where the ark dwells. But but I'm going to make her a place. Not only did he make her a place, he built her a temple to worship this false deity or the group of deities that she worshipped from Egypt. That's his first wife. He, he has her outside. You see the compromise beginning to come in to Solomon, the wisest guy on the face of the earth. Knowing to do right and doing right are two different things, right? You guys know that? 
I mean, let's, say, let's face it, oftentimes people look at Solomon and say, how could he be so wise? Look at all the dumb things he did. Well, wait a minute. Knowing the, the wise way to go and doing the wise thing, that's two different things. Right? Having wisdom and then walking in wisdom, <laughs> that's not always the same. Do we ever know the right thing to do and not do it? I mean, we may not be as wise as Solomon, but are there times in our life where we go, you know, I know God doesn't want me to do this, watch this, read this, go there, be there. And if we know that, then we understand exactly what it is to be Solomon. The compromise will stop us, hinder us from being able to finish well. That's our goal, right? It's not all about how we started. And all of us started as something else. None of us started as a member of church. I don't care if you grew up in a church. You don't start with a relationship with God. You start as a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. You meet the Lord. He saves you where you're at. But then He continues the work of salvation. That's called sanctification. And He moves us from where we are to more and more, greater and greater degrees of holiness or to become more and more like Him. Right? That's our journey through life until we see Him face to face and then we're glorified, made like Him. That we will, we will know even as we are known, that we will understand as He understands that there will be, uh, um, the end of our battle with sin and our struggle with our personality and our flesh when we see Him face to face called glorification. Well, as we, as we look at that, God wants to bring us through that work of sanctification. And as He wants to bring us through that work, it requires our participation. He won't force us to be anything. He won't force Solomon to do right. He gave Solomon the Word. He gave Solomon the wisdom. Has Solomon left any of that wisdom for you and I? Well, 3,000 Proverbs... 1,000 songs. I'd say he left something behind. A couple of books that tell us you're not going to find happiness anywhere but in a relationship with God. So there are definitely some things that Solomon left behind as a part of his life to say, hey, I made some mistakes. I got off track. And one of those mistakes, leaving the people in the land. Another one, choosing to marry Pharaoh's daughter just to make peace with with Egypt. Did he need Pharaoh's daughter to have peace? No. How many wives does he have? 700. How many concubines? 300. Thousand different women in his life. People say, that's the wisest guy in the world? Yeah, again, think. Knowing what's right and doing what's right are two different things. So he, people say, well, he took all those wives to make peace. That's a lot. Of, there, I don't even know if there's 700 nations around him. I think we give him more, <laughs> more benefit of the doubt than he needs. There's a whole other thing at work in Solomon's life. I'm reminded, you remember when, when we read the story of Cain and Abel? And, and the Lord said to Cain, he said, Cain, if you do right, won't you be accepted? Remember, it all started with both of them bringing an offering, right, to God. They brought their offering to the Lord. And I'm not going to speculate in, in what, why, or how. All I'm going to say is one was received and one wasn't. Cain's was rejected. His offering wasn't received. Maybe it wasn't his best. 
Maybe it wasn't blood. I don't know. I don't know what the requirements are because it happens in Genesis chapter 4. And we don't have a system for sacrifice until uh, Exodus. So it's early. (laughs) So it means God must have revealed something to these guys about how to bring an offering. So whatever happens, it's not, Cain's isn't received. And the Lord looks at Cain and he says, why is your countenance fallen? He says, why are you mad? If you do right, won't you be accepted? Cain, just do right, and I'll accept it. And then he looked at Cain, and he gave Cain warning, right? He said, Cain, sin is at the door of your heart, and its desire is to rule you. But you should rule over it. The same thing that brought Cain down in the murder of his brother brought Solomon down. Solomon, you're the wisest guy on earth, but sin is at the door, and its desire is to rule you. You should rule over it. He struggled in that area. Is there really not anyone here who can relate to that? That sin is at the door of your heart. Whether it's in the, in the disguise of unforgiveness. Or in the disguise of gossip. Or in the disguise of lust. Or if it's dressed up however. Sin is at the door in our lives and it wants to rule us. God said in Genesis chapter 4, you can rule over it. You can make the choice not to give in to temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul told us that none of us face temptation that is uncommon to man, right? Sometimes we think my temptation is harder than someone else. The Bible would disagree. The Bible say no. And the Bible says, with every temptation you face, God has given you a way out. Everyone. Solomon didn't have to marry a thousand people. Solomon didn't have to multiply horses or, or all those things that he did. He didn't have to. Sin was at the door. The part of the key for why he didn't finish well is he wouldn't deal with his sin Part of the reason why the children of Israel struggled is they wouldn't put out the people God told them to put out. We have sins of omission and sins of commission, right? To not do what God has asked you to do. What do you call that? That's sin. Right? And that hinders our ability to finish well. To, to, I'm not saying it hinders your ability to be saved. I'm saying it hinders your ability to finish. Right? Are we all moving toward the same goal or we just want to barely make it? Because some people live their life like they just want to barely make it. And I hope they're right because just barely making it's a scary place to be. The Lord doesn't give us a, a line in the sand that says, okay, here, you're good, here. <laughs> there are scary verses, right? We talk about those. Many will say, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Even though they healed and prophesied and did incredible things, miracles, but they weren't gods. So, the challenge is we want to finish well. So we want to recognize these areas that were struggles for Solomon. In verse 12 it says, Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord which he had built before the vegetable, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses, for Sabbaths and new moons and the three appointed yearly feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
It's interesting because when you do a study of when the children of Israel actually started to practice those things, wow, they didn't really do a very good job. There's a wide open margin of time when they did not celebrate Passover, when they didn't celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the, when they didn't celebrate the new moons and the Sabbaths, from the time Joshua brought them into the land until Solomon. Until David, I think David. And then there's a period of another big gap going all the way to Hezekiah. That's a long time. Then there's another gap from Hezekiah all the way to Josiah. So don't get in your mind that the children of Israel were consistently doing the things that God asked them to do. No, they, were, they weren't even close. Until a godly king would come and show them the way. And for a period of time, we've all read the book of the Judges, right? Children of Israel do good. Life gets good. They fall away. Need a deliverer. Deliverer comes. They do good. Right? That up and down. Well, that happens during the kings as well. The heart of man doesn't really have the power or is empowered to change, I don't think, until we see the Messiah and the promise of the Holy Spirit to say, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. You can rely on that power of the Holy Spirit to equip you to do what you need to do. So they're offering, they're... they're they're fulfilling the feasts. Now, according to the order of David, his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties uh, to praise and serve before the priests as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. And they did not depart from the command of the king to the priests or the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. Now all the work of Solomon was well ordered from the day in which the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. And Solomon went to Azion, Geber, and Eloth on the sea coast in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants and the servants who knew the sea. And they went with servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to Solomon. Ophir, some say it's as far away as India, which would be roughly three months' travel by sea. The Israelites weren't a seafaring nation. They didn't like the ocean, the sea. But under Solomon and through King Hiram providing ships, they did do some seafaring. And later on, we'll see they travel as far as, as Tarshish, which a lot of people put in Spain. So it means that at the time of Solomon, they would have sailed all the way to Spain in, in order to do trading. So the fame of Solomon had, had spread quite a ways around the world at that point. Now, chapter 9 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. Having a very great retinue, camels, and bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Now, in chapter 9, we get a view of one of the good things. Again, remember the focus of Ezra, the things that, were, that Solomon did well, more than the focus on the things where Solomon failed. The queen of Sheba is one of the great things that he did. His fame, remember, spread far and wide, people hearing of his wisdom, his wealth, the power, the blessings that God had poured out in his life. 
So the queen of Sheba comes to see it. What I like about the queen of Sheba and what I try to remember whenever I consider someone who tells me they're a seeker, they want to understand. Maybe they haven't made a decision for Christ yet, but they claim to be a seeker. Well, one of the things that I think makes a true seeker, someone who honestly is asking questions with a, with an eye to maybe make a decision, uh, one way or another and what they're, what they're going to do with their life in terms of their relationship with, with Jesus Christ is what you see in the queen of Sheba. She was prepared to make a commitment to Solomon. Do you see what she came with? Great retinue. The, the word is an entourage. A lot of people with her. She brought gold and spices. She brought everything she could think of that she might want to give him. If all this stuff is true, if all the things that I heard about his wisdom are true, then I'll give him all of this, all this wealth. What she's given is a lot. She's not Solomon. But it, it, it kind of provides a little picture, right? The Bible says, unless you are willing to forsake all for Jesus and you're not fit to be his disciple. That's the same attitude she comes with. She's got all her stuff and she'll give if she finds out this guy is for real. So she wants to ask him hard questions. A lot of riddles, a lot of issues. You ever had questions burning in your mind? You think, man, I wish I had the answer to this. In my Bible, I have written right down beside it. I wish I could like watch the video of this. I want to hear the questions. You really think there wasn't the what's the meaning to life deal? You know, why are we here? How do I mean, I don't know, but all the, the different types of philosophical questions that people might wrestle with. I think she brought them all. She brought him all and she asked him every question that was on her heart. And then verse 2, I love it, says, So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. Wow. He answered it all. Probably the last time somebody was ever able to do that. I know I can't. There's a few questions out there. I go, wow, I don't know. Have to keep reading, keep studying. Maybe one day I'll step on the answer. But Solomon had them. And he laid them out. Listen to what it says. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house he built, the food on his table, and the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, their apparel... The cupbearers in their apparel and the entryway by which he went to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. The word for spirit is the word ruach. It means breath. It's like it took her breath away. Took her breath away. All the things that she saw. So let's, I just want you to think about those, those things for a minute. I want to take a, a look at some of them. I want to take a look at some of them. When, when the Queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon. And the house that he had built. You know, we follow a greater than Solomon today. A greater than Solomon. And that greater than Solomon is Jesus Christ. So hold your place here and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it's Gentiles eat pork chops. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Good way to remember it. I, see, there are some handy things that you learn in Bible college. That was one of them. I have passed on my, my infinite knowledge. Now you guys have all that I have for all those years. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 is saying, just like she was amazed at the house that Solomon had built, the temple. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God's doing the same thing in your life. He's building us corporately into the temple of God. He's building us individually into the temple of God. We become that building. So what does it say? When the queen of Sheba saw the house that he had built. Seekers today are the same way. When they see the house of God built God's way. When they see the stones fitted together. When they see the Spirit of God dwelling in the house of God. It takes their breath away. The same way that Solomon ministered to the Queen of Sheba. The Scripture, the New Testament talks about us being the same thing. What's the, second, the next thing it said? Not only the, the house, but the food at His table. Well, you serve a greater than Solomon, don't you? What's the food at, at, at the table that the Lord has laid out for you? Oh, come on, it's 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the, the psalmist would declare that, that he prepares a table in the presence of mine enemies, right? He prepares a table for me. What's the table that God prepares for us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered up to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed, He took the bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same manner, He took the cup, Saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He come. That's the food. The table God, the greater than Solomon, has prepared for us. And when the Queen of Sheba, when she sees the food... The body and the blood of Christ given for His disciples takes her breath away. There's no more spirit in her. The servants, the servants, the seating of the servants and the service of His waiters. When the Queen of Sheba sees what Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. When, when the Queen of Sheba sees how, how we serve and how we wait on one another and on the Lord. I want you to think about that for a minute. The Bible says to wait upon the Lord, right? 
Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. We all know, right? They will, they will walk and not grow faint, mount up with wings of eagles. How can you wait on the Lord today? A lot of people, and I'm, and I'm not going to, I don't want to get the idea that, that waiting isn't sometimes setting still. Sometimes it is. The Bible says be still and know. But the word wait is also an action word. Right? How do we wait on the Lord today? By waiting on one another. Where is the body of Christ today? If it's not among us. If it's not here. If it's not in our brothers and our sisters. And so when she, the queen of Sheba, sees the way we wait on one another, the way we serve in the body of Christ, it takes her breath away. See, we think we got to have the right words to say. But in reality, what we need is all the things that Solomon had going for him before he gets derailed and off track, that he wants to serve the Lord, he wants to walk with the Lord, that he's walking in that wisdom, that it's not just words on a page, it's really how he lives his life. And it becomes all these things. All these things are a part. Not only does she say the way you serve and the way you wait, but what she's talked about the apparel, right? Look how they're dressed. Look how they're dressed. Man, Isaiah 61, just, just take a look. In Isaiah chapter 61, incredible chapter, an incredible section of Scripture. But as we go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, just, just hear what the prophet says. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God. What's he say? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Like a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And like a bride adorns herself with jewels. Man, the prophet says, man, when you have a relationship with God, you are adorned in the greatest things. The garment of salvation. The robe of His righteousness. Man, it's, it's the best duds anybody can have on. When the queen of Sheba, that seeker looking to make a decision, ready to make a commitment, sees the beauty of the righteousness that is the robe that Christ gives His people. When she sees the reality of salvation that we're clothed in, it takes her breath away. It takes her breath away. I love how this section of Scripture just puts it all together. And then listen to the last part. And His entryway by which He went into the house of the Lord. Oh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except how? What's our way? What's our entryway to the Lord? That's Jesus. And by Him, doesn't the Scripture tell us in Hebrews 4 that we can enter boldly into the throne room of God, right? You guys get what that is. The throne room of God, where God is sitting on His throne. You can just come in. If you think you can just walk in the White House to, to Barack's office when he's in there in the Oval Office, you think you can just walk in? Do you have access to him? Well, do you think he really reads your letters? Or, or if you tweet him, do you think he looks at your tweet? 
So I would say you don't have access to the president. Yeah? What, what about your congressman? You think he, he reads them? Well, some maybe. Right? Maybe a little more. We have a little more access to them. What about the mayor? The mayor Buell. We got access to him? I bump into the mayor Buell. You never know where you're going to bump into him. Be at the co-op. There he is. So, so we have access. You see, you see, as we come further down man's elevation, we have more access. But when you talk about a relationship with God, is there any higher elevation than God Almighty? And when the Bible says you can enter boldly, you know that's like a child in, the, in, in, in his father's the king. He had access to the king whenever he wanted him. That, that little boy could have just come running in, barreling in in the middle of a meeting. That's the king's son. That's how you have access. When the queen of Sheba sees how you have access to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, it takes her breath away. Isn't that awesome? That's, the, that's one of the pictures, right, that we see in Solomon. And the greater than Solomon. Doesn't the Scripture to say that, that Jesus is a greater than Solomon? Jesus Himself said a greater than Solomon is here right now. In fact, Jesus talked about the Queen of Sheba. He said she will rise up in judgment against this generation. So that tells me she believed. There was something salvific that took place with the, the Queen of Sheba. There was her salvation. She came to know the God of the universe through Solomon. I think that's cool. I think it's a it's a neat thing to hold on to because Jesus knew her, right? Hey, the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up in judgment against y'all <laughs> because she saw the wisdom of Solomon and repented and came to a relationship with God. And a greater than Solomon is standing before you now, and you don't see it. So she's going to judge you. So we see the picture. Jesus began painting it for us. We're just looking through Scripture and finding it ourselves. It took her breath away. Then she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. I want you to think about the things that they would say about Solomon. Solomon was a long time ago, right? Do you know he brought in a billion dollars in gold a year? He reigned for 40 years. That means at the end of Solomon's reign, just from the tribute, 40 billion in gold. Now today, is that a lot of money? What about, what, 3,000 years ago? Oh, I think it was a lot of money then too. Well, I don't know. I don't know. He brought in 25 tons of gold. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,000 songs. His wisdom was talked about far and wide. And she said, I didn't believe it until I came and I saw it for myself. And she saw, she saw this. And listen to what she says. And indeed, the half of your greatness, the greatness of your wisdom, was not told to me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men. You know, happy, it's the same word as blessed. It's not the common word for blessed, but it means the same thing. Oh, how happy. 
That's why you see happy and blessed in these, in these two verses. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. She's saying, man, there, just to be in your presence and see the wisdom of God moving through your life, these guys are blessed to be there. And blessed be the Lord your God. Please do not miss that. Blessed be the Lord your God. What, what did she just say? She used the covenantal name of God. The covenantal name of God. The name only the high priest knew. What does that intimate? What does that mean? Look, people didn't just throw around the name of God. If you used the name of God, you knew the name of God. She said, oh, blessed is the Lord God... She said, blessed is the Lord your God who delighted in you. She, does she know where his wisdom came from? Does she know where his might came from? Does she know where his power came from? Look, because your God has loved Israel and has established them forever. Therefore, he made you king. Who made Solomon king? Solomon did it himself? No, she said the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh. Yehovah. Man, he, he did this to do justice and righteousness. And so she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, precious stones. There were never any spices such as those as the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. I always think about the little drummer boy when I come to that part of the story. Because once you come face to face with God, what are you going to give him? I don't know, man. You give him what you got. Little drummer boy, he just had his drum. Right? The story goes, he just played his drum. Queen of Sheba just gave him what she brought. 120 talents of gold. Uh, talent was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 75 pounds, so that's no little thing. That's a lot. Spices in great abundance. She gave everything she had. She's not going to go back with anything. She gave it all. Everything that she came with, she gave it to Solomon. Because she came face to face with a God. She said, there is a God. And I see it because I see your wisdom. And I see this power. And this can't happen in just any old person. This is your God, the God of Israel. And so the Queen of Sheba, she, she comes to know that. And she lays all these things down. But, but just like, just, just like, just like when we do that with Jesus. Just look at the rest of the story. It says, also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir. Remember that they sailed to, toward India. They brought algam wood and precious stones. And the king made walkways of algam wood in the house of the Lord and for the king's house and harps out of algam wood and the stringed instruments for singers. So there was none as such as these before in the land of Judah. He made these incredible instruments. Now King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she gave him. Isn't that true in our relationship with God? I mean, do we really think we give God so much compared? What does the Bible say? How will he who did not withhold his only begotten son not also freely give unto you all things? Does God withhold anything from us? The Bible says he will not withhold any good thing. 
None. He gives abundantly above all we could ask or imagine, doesn't He? Man, He pours out on us just like Solomon. She gave Him, what was the 120 talents of gold to Solomon when he's bringing 25 tons in a year? Yeah, it was, not, it was, not, it was nothing. But, but what did He do? He, didn't he, he rejoice in the opportunity to bless her? Just like, just like God. What did He tell us in, in Malachi chapter 3? In Malachi chapter 3, He said, Won't I... Won't I, if, if you choose to take the challenge that I'm giving you, that was the challenge of tithing. Now I knew sooner or later Jackie was going to talk about giving. I don't care. Give or don't give. It don't matter to me. God ain't broke. What you lose is, is what you would have gained from it. Not what God gets. He's fine. Solomon wasn't lacking money. But he said, take this challenge. Tithe and see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing you won't be able to contain it. Only place in the scripture God does that. In the world, in the world, the average Bible believing Christian gives 2% of their. Now, Hey, the Lord says, give hilariously. I don't care. Give what you want to give. I'm just saying, God said, test me. She gave it all, and she got back more. Does that mean if I give God a hundred bucks, he'll give me a thousand? Some people will tell you that. If I give God my Mercedes, he'll give me a Jaguar or a Lamborghini. It means exactly what it says. Maybe he will. Hopefully a Harley, huh? It means what it says. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, we're deteriorating now. I don't know if I'll ride a Honda. That's getting crazy. <laughs> it means what it says. God said, I'll pour out on you a blessing and you won't be able to contain it. Blessing is joy and happiness and peace. Did you get that? To be blessed means to be happy. What does the world walk around? People walk around all the time. They're not happy. Right? They're always looking for a thrill. They're looking for something else that may satisfy. Right? That's why they get in souped up cars and drive way too fast down the street. And sometimes that don't turn out so good. Right? That's why they they take drugs in huge abundances uh, and end up putting a shotgun in their mouth. Because they're chasing happiness and they can't find it. Solomon later on in his life would write Ecclesiastes. What would he say in Ecclesiastes? I can't catch it. I had it all. Money, power, fame. I'm not happy. Yet the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where do I find the joy of the Lord? When I learn to delight myself in Him. In Him. And to delight myself in Him means I can't be delighted myself in my stuff. I can have stuff. Stuff is stuff. You guys get that? It has no positive or negative energy. Right? It's stuff. You can have stuff. You just can't have your stuff have you. You get the difference? So... 
When I delight in the Lord, when my joy is not in my bank account, but in Him. And one of the ways Jesus said you can tell where your joy is, is He said, where's your treasure? Isn't that what Jesus said? Look, I didn't say it. Matthew chapter 6, knock yourself out. You'll see scarier things than that. When Jesus came to the rich young ruler, what did He tell him? Take everything you got, sell it, give it to the poor. Make yourself utterly and totally destitute, come and follow me. And you will have riches in heaven. Isn't that what he said? Uh, Jackie didn't say that. Well, I did, but it's in here. (laughs) We delight ourselves where our treasure is. That's what Malachi was getting to. That's it. That's all Malachi was, was saying. That's what the Lord was saying through Malachi. Here's how you put your treasure in heaven. You give it to the Lord. You give your stuff to Him. And what will you have? Joy. That your joy may be full. Look, I got a lot of really cool things in my life for, for Christmas. I've probably been given more stuff for Christmas than 90% of the world, you know. Do you know nothing has ever made me happier than being in Mexico and handing a kid a shoebox, a kid who had nothing? Lived on a dirt floor, had no house, no heat. It was like 30 degrees. We were freezing down there. No heat, no bed. The family to keep warm all slept together. They sleep in a pile. And I got to give this kid a shoebox. Like one of the shoeboxes we do for Operation Christmas Child. We took down to Mexico like 800 shoeboxes and got to give them out. Smuggled it across the border. You know, I was dealing with all these moral issues like, is this okay? Not okay? We took a school bus because they won't stop a school bus. And we filled the bottom of that school bus with presents. You couldn't put your feet down. Because the greedy in Mexico would want to take it. So we smuggled it in. And I, I took it and I handed it to this kid. Never had a gift in his whole life. I had lots of gifts. You had to nail my feet to the floor to keep me from floating away. What do you call that? Happiness. Joy. That same thing guys are slamming, you know, heroin hoping to achieve or doing meth hoping to to find a little piece of or or running after the almighty dollar as hard as they can thinking if I make a little more I'll be happy. And I had it all. And once you taste it, you realize nothing else is going to make me happy. What was that? That was doing unto the least of these, my brethren. Now what Jesus said? When you've done it unto the least of these, it's not in the abundance of my stuff. I still got stuff. I still got more stuff than most people in the world got stuff. But my stuff is not ever going to own me. It's all going to burn. No U-Hauls on the way to heaven, right? It all stays. I'll, I'll give it all to Rusty. He can have it all. <laughs> but the point, it can't have me. That's where happiness is. Enjoy. God gives us more than we ever give. God gives us more than we'll ever have. He probably gives us more than we'll ever truly, fully understand here. 
But we'll know it when we see him. When you see his face, you see the scars. Every one of them scars scream out to you, I love you. Every one of them. Man, there'll be no day like that. King Solomon, he gave her everything. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly, 666 talents of gold. A lot of people like to make something out of that. What was that number again? 666. That seems like that's prominent somewhere else in the Bible, isn't it? (laughs) So you got all kind of people dance around. I think it means there were 666 talents of gold. (laughs) 25 tons was a lot. A billion dollars a year. It's a lot of money. Besides what the traveling merchants and traders brought and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country, they brought gold and silver. Now King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shields of hammered gold went into, or 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of hammered gold. 300 shekels of gold went into each of these shields. The king put them in the house called the Forest of Lebanon. This was part of his palace. It was filled with gold shields. Solomon said something in Ecclesiastes along the lines of, what, do you, what, what, what guarantee do you have? You may be a good king, but what about the next one? And what will happen to all the stuff you amass? Well, I can answer that for you. Pharaoh got it all. Right after Solomon died, Pharaoh came in and whooped him and took all the shields from the, the, the house of Lebanon the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Man, when's the last time you took ivory and covered it with something? You know, I was going to make something out of ivory, but it wasn't pretty enough. So I'm going to cover it with gold. (laughs) Is that not crazy? It's just me. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build me. If I'm going to build something out of ivory, I want to see the ivory, right? (laughs) That's crazy. This is how you know you have too much money. You do dumb stuff. I'm going to build a throne of ivory. I'm going to make a giant pearl and I'm going to cover it with gold. Why? Then just use wood. Same, right? What you're looking at is the gold. Solomon had this cool, crazy cool throne. Had all these lions around it. Listen. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne, and armrests on either side of the place of the seat. Two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had ever been made for any kingdom. You know what the Bible says God is enthroned on? The praises of His people. No... No crazy, ornate throne. God is enthroned when you praise Him. And you know, you praise what you love. Ain't no question. You praise what you love. If you struggle praising God, I would say there's an issue there. You praise what you love. Come on, what are you talking about? You think about something you love. Let's make it easy. Football team. Oh, I love the Chargers. 
<laughs> That's not true. But I just see Brian back there. So I wanted to say that. I love the Chargers. I'll talk about how great they are. Well, they're so smart. They got a good quarterback and blah, blah. What's that called? Praise. What am I praising? What I love. God is enthroned on the praises of his people. What is the one thing God asks for from us? Love me. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And before you make an excuse for yourself about how you can't do that, remember Peter. Peter, do you love me? Oh, yeah, Lord, you know I'm your friend. Peter, do you love me? Oh, yeah, Lord, I'm your friend. Peter, are you my friend? Even though Peter recognized that he wanted to love God more but was not able, was that enough? The Lord said, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He gave him responsibility, right? Even though Peter could never bring himself to say, I agapeo you. All he could say was, I phileo. Love you like a friend. Even though God said to Peter, I love you with a self-sacrificing love. How do we know? He died for him. Did Peter ever love God with a self-sacrificing love? Sure he did. When? When they put him on the cross. He gave himself. Huh? You know you never hit a target you don't aim for? Make excuses, but you'll never hit it. If you're not aiming for it. How was it that Peter was able to do it? Well, Jesus promised him. When I, it's going to be better for you when, when the Holy Spirit comes than it is when I'm here with you. Because when He comes, He's going to hook you up. Romans 5.1, the love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Man, pretty incredible, huh? It says in verse 21, or verse 20, all the king's drinking vessels were gold. Mine are those red plastic Dixie cups. I don't know why. I hate washing dishes. So I just throw those away. Don't you know it fills up landfills? Yeah, I know. I don't care. I just don't want to wash dishes. So I have. But his were gold. He had to wash those. I don't think he threw them away. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of gold. Why? Listen, not one was silver because... It was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Silver was red Dixie cup. Silver was just junk. Ah, it's junk. You have so much gold, what do you need any of that silver for? For the king's ships went to Tarshish, that's Spain, with the servants of, of Hiram once every three years. And they came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. How many of you guys, your Bible says peacocks? Isn't that crazy? The real Bible's crazy too. Peacocks. Look, here's what, whenever you run into that and you look at your Bible and somebody says, mine says monkeys and mine says peacocks, what does that tell us? It tells us they have no idea what it is. 
All the reason they chose peacocks in the King James and some of the other versions, the reason they did it is because a peacock at the time of King James represented a luxury animal that a king might go get. So the word is some type of points to some type of monkey they think, but it's also points to some luxurious animal. So in the King James, they're translating the thought. You get you get what I'm saying? Because they can't translate the word. They can't translate the word, so they're translating the thought. The thought is a luxurious animal. That's what a peacock was then. So that's why that's why it says that's why it says peacock. I don't know. I don't think it was a peacock. I don't know what it was. I'm okay with saying I don't know what it is. It's prettier. Some monkeys. Oh no, they got some colorful monkeys. But anyways, they don't know. So if you like peacocks, run with it. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his heart. Each man brought his present articles of silver and gold garments, armor, spices, horses, mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So he reigned over all the kings from the river. You see the definite article before the word river? That's always referring to the Euphrates, which was one of the boundary lines of Israel given to Abraham by God. By the way, that's not the boundary of Israel today, right? The Euphrates is somewhere in the middle of Iraq. So... That's a lot of land that doesn't belong to Israel anymore. Okay? So, we see that. So, from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands. Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan, the prophet? In the prophecy of Ahijah, uh, the Shilonite, and the visions of Edo, the seer, concerning Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. And Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. I always like when I come to the end of Solomon to think about his last words. In Ecclesiastes 12:13, here's the sum of it. The sum of all his life and all the craziness. Worship God and obey His commandments. That's what Solomon understood at the end. As to his final state, I don't know. Any more than I know yours. I just know it would have been better to finish well. Right? Finished like he started. Focus. Finished like he was when the Queen of Sheba came to see him. Oh, he wasn't perfect. I'm sure he had problems then. We all do, right? But he was at least aiming at the target. And he brought her to faith. And hopefully, prayerfully, that's what we do as a body. Because there are a lot of Queen of Sheba's out there, right? That are looking... That there's got to be more to this life than than all the stuff they read about or see or hear other people talk about, right? All of that stuff, there's got to be more. But in reality, what is it? 
What is it that God wants from us? What is it that God's looking for from us? Just reflect the light of Christ. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, what happens? I will draw all men to myself. So what should we be doing? Lifting him up. Not us. Not a building or a program or a plan. Who do we lift up? Jesus. That's it. Lift up Jesus. Reflect Jesus in your life. And it will take their breath away.